0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford
1: University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, your host, Timothy George.
0: Well, today on the Beeson Podcast, I have a very special guest, Dr. Bryant Wright. He is the pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia and also the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Welcome,
1: Brian. Very glad to be with you today.
0: Now, there's so much we've got to talk about here in this short time. We're going to launch right into it. Tell us a little bit about your own background, your calling, your conversion, how you came to know Christ, how you came to be a pastor.
1: You know, I often tell people I'm not really sure when I became a Christian that really causes people pause, but I share it like this. As a child, I made some kind of decision growing up in a Christian home, but I really am not convinced I came to the Lord then. It was at 16, I went to a Young Life ranch in Colorado, and there hearing the gospel, I became greatly convicted that I had just been using God by convenience, calling on him before a big game or a big date or a big test, but really not following Jesus. And at that point, I really gave my heart and life to Christ and know for sure that I have been a Christian since that time. I was a little slow to have a calling to ministry. Um, I went in the business world uh, about two and a half years after finishing the university. I was uh, uh, in sales with a chemical company. My father's a fine Christian businessman. I was kind of following in his example. But the calling came a little slower in the sense of not having it during the university years and then talking with my wife, Ann, about this possible calling. She was kind enough to pray with me about it even though it was not her calling, and thankfully supportive in God giving me that calling. But um very thankful, Timothy, for those years of being in business because in a congregation that's overwhelmingly business and professional folks, it's just great to have an understanding of what they're going through as well as they know that I understand something of what yeah. they're going through. Now, you mentioned your wife, Ann. She's actually here with us in the studio today, a wonderful woman of faith. And you all have three children, three boys, right? We have three sons, um, and our oldest son and his wife have blessed us with four grandchildren, Wow! seven, five, three, and a few months old. And he is a pastor. He is the pastor of our newest church, start, about 24 miles north of us.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Now, tell a little bit. You went to the University of South Carolina. That's correct. And they gave you an honorary doctorate last year. You're the only president of the SBC, I think, who has received a doctorate from a state university in a long, long time.
1: Well, I can't tell you how shocked I was when the call came. Greatly appreciative when your own alma mater would make that decision to do so. But I'm very thankful that they chose to make that decision.
0: Yeah, and from South Carolina, you then went to Louisville, and you uh, studied at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary.
1: That's correct.
0: And graduated, I think you graduated in 1980. I came in 1979 there, so we just were like two ships passing in the night. That's
1: right. I wish I had the privilege of being in your class.
0: <laughs> and, and after seminary, you then uh, worked for a while at Second Baptist Houston with Dr. Ed Young. Is that right?
1: That's right. I went there to begin their singles ministry. It's a wonderful location in Houston and reaching especially young single adults coming right out of the university. And it was a wonderful experience for two and a half years there.
0: One of the great churches in our country, I think.
1: I kid yeah. folks. They've really suffered since we left. They were running about 2,500, and now they're running about 25,000. Yeah. So <laughs> right. they've struggled since we left. Well, you helped them. <laughs> yes.
0: Now, we're talking about church and pastoral work, and so we've got to talk about the church that God led you to be a part of beginning, actually, a number of years ago now, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. Tell us about the story of Johnson
1: Ferry. Well, we went there in December of 1981. It's been about 30 years ago. There were about 20 families meeting in an empty doctor's office that they were leasing to have weekend worship services where they'd have a retired pastor come in and preach while they were searching for the pastor. So it's a privilege for us to be in the beginning days of Johnson Ferry, to be in that founding pastor role, and to be able to stay in one church all these years has been a great blessing. I I went on my first sabbatical to the studies, 36 growing churches of all denominations around the country in 1988. And the one common denominator I saw in all those growing churches was long-term pastor. And I asked the Lord then if He would give me the privilege of staying in one place. And thankfully, He's allowed that because you just you, you're able to build some trust not only in the church but in the whole community by staying in one place.
0: That's what I tell our students here at Beeson. Just. Just bloom where God plants you. Yeah, We know the Lord can change people's lives and itineraries, but don't go with the idea I'm going to stay here a few years and get a bigger church, go to a better place. Stay there as God allows you to do that, and your ministry will prosper.
1: That's right. As Ann says, it's like I've pastored ten different types of churches, but all with the same <laughs> name.
0: That's great. Now, you began in 1981. And so you've been at this a while, and you started with this small group. You now have some 8,000 members at Johnson Ferry.
1: That's right.
0: A few years ago, I was privileged to preach in your church, and I remember what a dynamic, uh, vital, living congregation it is. And uh, one of your passions is missions, church planting. Talk about that.
1: Well, I think the fact that John Safiri has planted, uh, I think it's seven or eight churches in North Atlanta. Our newest plant is in uh, Silicon Valley, where we are uh, the parent church of the South Bay Church. And uh, we are planting that with 14 other congregations. So we're not the only parent church. But I think it's really the new wave of what's going to happen with church planting around our country. And we're very excited. That church is just doing tremendous. When Anne and I visited there, uh, it's such a young congregation, all those uh, folks working at Google or Microsoft or Apple, that they ask Ann, now whose parents are y'all? So it, it was obvious that we were uh, not typical for that congregation. Yeah. But that's great to see. Plus, uh, Timothy, that what has happened in the last 20 years at Johnson Ferry is short-term mission trips have had a huge spiritual impact on our, on our church. And it began with our student minister taking students uh, for a week of spring break, to build houses for the poorest of the poor and to go door-to-door sharing the plan of salvation. It was so impactful that every year since that time, we've seen more and more people going on mission trips. And in 2011, we had over 1,700 of our members, teenagers and adults, go to 34 nations on 71 mission trips around the world. And when they come back, What it does for the body of Christ uh, by them having that world vision and leaving a touch of their heart there is just awesome what it's done to Johnson Ferry.
0: Now let me ask you another question about Johnson Ferry. Your church is uh, somewhat unusual in that you have elders. We are elder led. Now that's becoming something of a trend among Baptist churches. Uh, Talk a little bit about. What does that mean to have an elder-led church? What led you to that decision? And how do you um, talk about that with other churches?
1: Well, as a new church plant, we were growing very rapidly. We were struggling with some growing pains, and I went to the Word just to see what it says about church governance. I became very convicted that the Bible is so clear about elder leadership in the body of Christ and deacons serving in a servant ministry role. I could not find another Southern Baptist church at the time. It was doing that i'm sure there were some but i just could not find one so i led our congregation through that in an in-depth bible study for several weeks about church governance what it says about elders it was the most difficult decision we ever made there were some very fine early families that said we were not going to be a baptist church if we did that but i communicated you know we have the autonomy of the local church and each church can decide on its governance as the holy spirit leads but that that was a hard thing for some to accept. So we did lose some early families when we went with that decision, but the the growing unity within the body of Christ since we've had that decision has been a wonderful blessing indeed. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my mentors, an older Southern Baptist pastor, asked me, he said, Brian, where in the world did you come <laughs> up with this idea? And I kind of meekly said, the Bible, <laughs> because it was really just a spirit-led, scripture-led decision. And, and I think, Timothy, it really told our community mm-hmm. that when there was a choice of denominational tradition or biblical authority, we were going to go with biblical authority. It really set a good tone for John Safiri in those early days. Now, Tons of new churches and church planners are going with elder leadership. And I think some people in our traditional mode become afraid because they think the pastor is going to be like an employee of the elders. But I serve as the chairman of the elders. I I set the agenda as the pastor because the pastor is called to lead the local body. Mm -hmm. But it's very much leadership by consensus in that when you have six godly laymen around you and they all feel free to speak what's on their heart in seeking God's will, if one or two of them have a check in their spirit about something I'm excited about, we just leave it on the table, pray about it until mm-hmm. we get a piece about Right. That. How are the elders chosen? The elders are chosen like our deacons are and that the, the congregation nominates those that they feel should be in this role. We take the top nominee and build a confidential list down from the top nominee and then we have three deacons selected by the deacons along with the deacon chairman and myself and we have a screening process. And really our question is, is there any... Check in any of the five of us spirit about this person serving as an elder. Is any biblical reason they're not qualified to serve as an elder? And it's been so encouraging year after year that the congregation has really chosen spiritually mature men to be in this role. So it's really been an affirmation of what that kind of screening committee goes through in selecting that person.
0: What is the difference between an elder and a deacon at Johnson Ferry?
1: The elders serve in a role that would be more typical of a board of deacons in a local church. They are overseeing the major pictures uh, as far as direction of the church, as far as uh, policy, the elders set policy. The deacons at Johnson Ferry are prayer support for the pastor and staff. They are servant ministers serving in key roles in worship in that regard. So there's a major uh, difference in the role. And because the elders are upholding the doctrine of the local church, we want them to be able to teach because that's a biblical qualification. They don't have to teach adults, but we want them in some kind of teaching role to stay in tune with what biblical doctrine. To be apt to teach, as the the Bible says. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, because by my counting, you are the 57th president of the Southern Baptist Convention since it was founded in 1845. Actually, the 56th, because one of our presidents, Dr. Adrian Rogers, served two terms separated by several different years. And when we think about the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, these great icons, these heroes of the past, people like George Truett and E.Y. Mullins and R.G. Lee and W.A. Criswell, Herschel Hobbes, you stand in a great and worthy tradition to be the leader of what is today the largest Protestant denomination in uh, North America. Uh, How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I'm often still surprised to be in this role, Uh, the kind of men you've talked about, uh, great men of faith. It's uh, it's an awesome privilege to serve in this role. And I am surprised to be in this role and feel it's just strictly the sovereignty of God that I have been selected for this because I have not been that involved in denominational life. Have mm-hmm. really focused my uh, attention on pastoring Johnson Ferry. Um, I know it's rare to have a church planter to stay in the same church for 30 years, but I've really had a passion for just seeking to build up the kingdom of christ through the local church so i really see this opportunity as an expansion of the platform that johnson ferry now has of hopefully positive influence for the kingdom of god because you know christ didn't come to start denominations he came to begin the kingdom of god and Mm -hmm. denominations are only effective and local churches only effective is how they are building up the kingdom of God. Otherwise, they're worthless, and we need to remember that. I think uh, as Southern Baptists, we are not always the most humble about our importance in the kingdom or maybe focusing too much on denominational focus rather than kingdom focus. But Mm. in the end, A denomination's overall impact will only be measured by building up the kingdom of Christ.
0: I want to ask you about some particular emphases and trends in the SBC today, one of which is called the Great Commission Resurgence. It actually was beginning before your election in 2010 as our president, but uh, talk about that and how, how you see it and where it's going.
1: I'm very thankful that my predecessor, Johnny Hunt, had the courage to identify the fact that we were no longer growing, no longer reaching people for Christ as we have in the past, especially when you compare numbers in the past, so much smaller denomination in those days when you think about the number of baptisms and that kind of thing. So he had the courage to identify the problem, to look at some structural changes and directional changes for our uh, convention, and As God has put me in this role, I've really seen a lot of my role is is continuing on with implementation of what they have really had on their heart from the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force. I think God has also filled in some pieces there in the sense that when I began as president, we didn't have a president of the North American Mission Board or the International Mission Mm -hmm. Board. God has led two very fine, spirit-filled, godly men to be in those roles. I'm very thankful to be serving with them and to just kind of... See that process and hopefully have some input in that process along the way.
0: It's Dr. Tom Eliff at That's the International right. Mission Board and Dr. Kevin Ezel at the North American Mission Board.
1: Outstanding men. And obviously, they are implementing a lot of what the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force hoped for. And I think. Uh, as Kevin Ezell is focused on church planning, especially uh, in the western United States and major cities outside the south and southwest, this is a hugely important decision, and really reallocating funding for local churches that are doing the church planning, churches like Johnson Ferry that are planning the church in San Francisco. Mm. They are supporting that financially versus NAM being in the leadership role or the state convention being in the leadership role of starting a church. Is looking to the local church, and then in international missions, Tom Elliff, and I have had a similar heart about reaching the unreached, unengaged people groups. There's about 3,800 that they have identified at the International Mission Board, and the challenge was put forth at the Phoenix Convention last year for churches to adopt or embrace these unreached people groups. About 600 came forward then; it's now grown to over 1,200 at the time of this taping. We hope that will continue to grow as we move toward the convention in New Orleans in June. But when you think about Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus is very clear we're to take the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth, and then the end will come. You can have some lively eschatological discussions about that verse, because it really unsettles people when they have mm-hmm. a preconceived eschatology. But the fact is, I believe Jesus. He says he's not coming until that job is done. So we have a lot to do. A lot to do, and There's real passion and a movement of the Holy Spirit for that to happen. I felt this passion to challenge the convention about this in Phoenix of last year. I called Tom Elliff right as he was beginning to serve as president. I said, Tom, this is a big one, but I really want to challenge the churches to step forward and embrace all these groups. We've got 44,000 churches. Surely we can have 3,800 step to the plate and embrace these people groups. It got quiet over the phone. I'm wondering, what's he thinking? Because they're going to have to be the one that facilitates this. He said, Brian, I've been meeting the last two days with the vice presidents of the IMB telling them that I want to go to the Venus Convention and challenge the churches of our convention to adopt all 3,800 people groups. Well, there was another silence on the phone as I teared up, and he was amazed that God was leading two different men at different points. That was really a How about a that? very special yeah,
0: term. And it's a new day, in a way, as we take on this challenge. It is, a, because
1: it's, it's up to the local church to lead versus just thinking about sending out IMB missionaries, because we could have 100,000 IMB missionaries and still not get to all these groups that we need to take the gospel to. So the local church in the lead with them facilitating is a truly new paradigm within our convention.
0: I want to ask you about another – I guess it's a controversy that you hear a lot about in the Southern Baptist Convention and beyond – Calvinism. What do you think about that controversy?
1: Well, I think for one thing, Calvinism is hot right now (laughs) with uh, college students, with theological seminary students today. Uh, We have one seminary out of six, Southern Seminary, where I graduated, that is clearly a Reformed uh, bent seminary today. And because you're talking about a view of Scripture that's very biblical, just as a more traditional Southern Baptist view that would not embrace all five points of Mm. Uh, in the strictest sense of Calvinism, having more focus on free will when it comes to election, I think there's room in Southern Baptist culture for both views because they are both so strongly based in Scripture. And you look at some of the great men in history that have been Calvinists that have been great missionaries. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a concern of those who are not Calvinists that there's not going to be a missionary bent, but we are commanded to take the gospel to every people group on earth by Jesus. It's not that it's – I don't think we should have a mindset it's up to us to get it done. It's up to us to obey Christ Mm, and mm. just be in service to Christ and then the Holy Spirit will see that the job is done when God wants it to be completed. So even this reaching the people groups, it's not that we're going to bring about Jesus' return sooner than it would be, it's just that God is allowing us to take part in what he is doing at this exciting point in history.
0: A few years ago, I was asked to write a biography of William Carey, our great father of modern missions, who went to India in the 1790s and stayed there for the rest of his life. Uh, and he was motivated uh, you know, by his belief that God had spoken to him and called him to do that and would undergird him in that seemingly impossible task. And I think that's the kind of spirit we need wherever we may come down on the five points. Uh, I, I like what you say that this ought not to be a divisive, acrimonious dispute among brothers and sisters who believe the Bible is the Word of God and we're seeking to understand it as best we can and to apply it.
1: That's right, in and our I lives. and I think too there there are dangers, uh, Timothy, as you know, because what Kerry faced was hyper Calvinism. Yeah. Basically, God will save the savages when he wants to save them and that's a misunderstanding of our role there and i think also those that have a more calvinist bent when they go or call to a local church they do want to have the integrity of sharing where they are theologically because i do think there has been some frustration that churches didn't feel like they got the real picture of a pastoral candidate because that person didn't really reveal that to them so i think you know integrity about where you are is very important
0: exactly right exactly right now, I want to shift focus again and talk a little bit about your own ministry uh, beyond Johnson Ferry, in a way. Johnson Ferry is, of course, where you're centered, and rightly so, but uh, you seem to have a, a passion and a desire to share the gospel in all kinds of ways, different modes of communication. So you have um, a radio ministry. You have a devotional ministry that goes out to many different people across the country. Uh, it seems to me that listening to your devotions, it's a little bit like the book of Proverbs, because there's practical, godly wisdom here about daily living of the Christian life. And you feel this is an important part of your witness in ministry.
1: Really do. I about twenty years ago felt led to to take this good news outside the walls of the church and we found it right from the heart ministries, which is a separate nonprofit ministry, really just began with one minute devotions over secular radio. In time, we began to do 30-second spots with television. Then in time with the Internet, putting these devotions on the Internet. And that's where it has really exploded the most over the last four or five years all around the world, which, as you know, with the Internet, you just never know how that can go viral. But I really love to offer contemporary man some hopeful insight through a biblical lens of what we see happening in our world today. Mm -hmm. And so all of those spots are really geared to the unbeliever Mm -hmm. knowing though that the believer hopefully will have their faith built up and will have encouragement to share their own faith when they're riding to work in a carpool with three or four other guys and one of those spots comes on in the middle of the news it gives that christian an opportunity to say a word about jesus christ so the lord has used it in a wonderful way and then books came out of that our most recent uh, book entitled right from the heart is 365 of those devotions that is really just another tool that people can give friends whether they're christian or not that hopefully will draw them to jesus christ
0: that's your most recent book right from the heart is published by thomas nelson that's correct and so i would recommend strongly that our uh, listeners get a copy of that you pack so much into one minute it's almost unbelievable um... Let me give our listeners an example. You have one, I think it's called the rat race or something like that, where you talk about two great problems in daily life. One is laziness, not doing the work we're called to do. The other is workaholism. And you say people have four uh, problems. A lot of people, you know, um, they're the first one in the office, the last one to leave. They just work all the time. Uh, They can't say no. They're people pleasers. Uh, Say yes to everything. Uh, three, uh, they always complaining about how hard they work. You know, I might be guilty of that. And then they never take a day off. You know, they never rest. Now, that's a lot of stuff to put in a minute, and yet it's very practical and very important for folks to take on what Jesus meant when he said, come to me
1: and I will give you rest. Absolutely. Rest in the rat race. And that's the key point that's illustrated in that point. Also, it gives us an opportunity when we're talking about work to talk about the, one of the greatest gifts that is so neglected by man, and that is the Sabbath. And I'm just absolutely passionate about a weekly sabbath with our staff and within our church and thankfully most weeks in serving as president of the commission have still been able to plan a weekly sabbath i have failed three or four times but Most weeks have been able to do that, and that is where God gives us that wonderful balance on work and rest that is so overlooked.
0: Well, you're talking in a way about what we might call a sacred rhythm that God has built into the human condition and called us to as believers in Christ. That's correct. To take so seriously. So uh, check out this book, 365 Devotions, called Right from the Heart by Dr. Bryant Wright, published by Thomas Nelson. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about another one of your fairly recent books, Seeds of Turmoil, a fascinating subtitle, The Biblical Roots of the Inevitable Crisis in the Middle East. What's that about?
1: Well, I think some people see that title. and They're almost frightened of taking the time to read it. They think it'll be too heavy or too depressing. But it's just fascinating to me, Timothy, that so many evangelical Christians think the problem in the Middle East really began in 1948 when Israel became a nation. And it goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah and their unwillingness to wait on God in God's perfect timing for giving them the covenant child of Isaac. Because they didn't wait, and Sarah had this very creative idea of Abraham sleeping with her maid that he was glad to oblige her on. She gave the maid gave birth to Ishmael, who is the father of the Arab people. Isaac, the father of the Jewish people, and then you begin to see what has evolved in history that goes all the way back to man's sin. And I think it would give people a great understanding of reading the paper today, mm. of understanding what's happening in the Middle East today. And it goes back to a sibling rivalry. So you're talking about biblical history, but also bringing it into our
0: contemporary world. Absolutely. in one of the great flashpoints, I think, of of our time in the Middle East. So if anyone's going to Israel or thinking about Israel or trying to make sense of the news on the Middle East, this is a great book to read. It's a biblical study, but one with a contemporary application.
1: Well, I thank you for your encouragement on that and really enjoy doing that work. I love going to Israel, fascinated with history, and teaching the Bible with that context has been a joy.
0: that book, again, is entitled Seeds of Turmoil, The Biblical Roots of the Inevitable Crisis in the Middle East, also by Thomas Nelson. That's correct. Great. I've been speaking today to Dr. Bryant Wright. He is the pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, one of the great congregations in our country today. He is also the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. God bless you, Bryant, and all you're doing to advance the cause of Christ in our world today.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for all that Beeson is doing under your leadership to advance the cause of the kingdom as well.
0: Thank you. God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com.